So Friday morning, I got here and uh, getting ready to help set up for the community health screening that was going on downstairs. Um, and sometime after getting all the doors unlocked and lights on and everything down there and, and helping them get everything that they needed, table and chairs wise and, and all that stuff, I came upstairs, uh, went into my office, sat down at my desk, I noticed on the calendar that it said it was the first day of spring, and then I looked out the window and saw that it was snowing. Um, so, yeah, spring. Um, hang on. There you go. Spring. <laughs> You ever feel just let down by an entire day? (laughs) It just wasn't quite what it was supposed to be. You look forward to spring coming and you expect something a little bit more. I mean, that's the the little wintry mix that we got is not what we want from our first day of spring. See, we want something that's going to help us forget about a long, cold, dark winter. You see, we don't want our march to, you know, come in like a lion and out like a maybe slightly smaller lion, even though that seems to be what we get more often than we would like. But you see, that has a lot to do with, I think, how we want to see the world. See, we want to see something that will make us forget the cold and the snow and the darkness. We want something that makes it easy for us to just not think about the fact that there's another winter that's going to come later. As well, we want to look at things in the most positive light possible and do our best to forget that the darkness was there and to ignore the fact that more darkness is probably, well, not probably, on its way. And practically speaking, maybe that's a good thing. In fact, that's probably necessary for survival on some level. I think God wired us in that way so that we wouldn't just give in to despair. But I think that sometimes we might have swung that pendulum a little bit too far in that direction. Because see, we modern Americans, we've become such optimists that I think we might have forgotten the proper place of lament. And nobody likes dwelling on the darkness in life. But you see, when we ignore that the darkness exists, that it's been here that it's probably coming again, that we might be in the middle of it right now. When we ignore that, well, we can get really good at averting our eyes when faced with something that's uncomfortable or faced with something that's painful that we just don't want to think about, we just don't want to talk about. And so, somewhere along the way, we forget how to talk about the darkness. And so, since we're not talking about it, when we experience it firsthand, we tend to suffer alone. And so then the darkness stays dark. The darkness remains in the shadows because we, the people who are living in the light, aren't aware of it enough to provide that much-needed response. We're taking on the role of the priest and the Levite that just passed the man by on the road instead of the Good Samaritan who actually saw that there was trouble and did something about it. But you see, Scripture is not blind to the darkness that exists in this world. In fact, the Scripture reading that we began with, and I realize I kind of stopped it at a strange place, not a place that we usually stop it. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now as we go on through the rest of that passage, whatever this opening of Genesis might tell us about the the how of creation Far greater than that, I think, is the profound statement that it makes about the nature of this world that's been created. It says, yes, there is darkness and chaos. You know, that word, that formless and empty, there's a Hebrew word, actually a couple words, uh, tohu vavohu. It's just fun to say, so I had to bring it up. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's this idea, that, that's the formless and empty. It's, it's the chaos. It's the disorder That as we go through this opening of Genesis, and we see God take something that was chaotic and disorder, and he brings order to it. He structures it in such a way that it is good. And so this opening recognizes that there is darkness and chaos, and it is distinct from light and from order. And most importantly, it is God who makes that distinction. It is God who separated the light from the darkness. It is God who is the ultimate authority on order and chaos. And so we see that there is simply darkness in this world. We would be wise to recognize it, but I love what a contrast the opening of Scripture is with the end. Just to kind of jump ahead a bit. Contrast it with the description of heaven I can, uh, one place we see it is in Revelation 22, verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. You see, there is coming a day, a time, a place in the presence of God where we won't have to worry about that distinction between light and darkness because God himself will be our light. There will be no night there. But for now, in this present world, there is darkness and there is chaos. Now, before we get to the, uh, the more moral distinction between good and evil, when we're talking about the, the problem and then the consequences of humanity's sinfulness, that's actually next week, today I think we need to deal with the chaos and disorder that's present just in the natural world itself. There is both light and darkness in this world. It's expressed in order and in chaos. And see, you don't need me to tell you that, though. You don't need me to tell you that there's darkness and chaos in this world. Because I can guarantee that each and every one of us have somehow been touched by it. By an accident. A strange circumstance. Some natural disaster. Sickness. Even death. We know that there's trouble in this world that wasn't just because some person made a choice that impacted me in a certain way, or my own sin caused me to reap its consequences, but there's just some things in the world that just aren't good, that just aren't right. And so we're left asking very naturally, why? And there have been a lot of questions, or excuse me, a lot of theories as to how to answer this question of why. I'm not really going to be able to get into all of them this morning. 
But in general terms, there's some different ways we can deal with this. We can say, well, as we see in the opening of Genesis, the world was made with darkness and light. A distinction between the two, but both of them still existing. Many have explained this nature of the the persistence of evil in the world, the persistence of darkness in the world, as being part of the created order so that we can maintain this, this free will, can maintain this choice, that we can see a difference between the light and the darkness, and it gives us the opportunity to choose. Some have said that it is for our own education, for our own learning of the difference between good and evil, that God has made a world that has darkness and light. Now, there are some who would go on the other end of the spectrum and say, no, everything that God created in its goodness could have no darkness in it. So the reason the world is darkened is by our own sin. It's humanity's fall that has ushered all the darkness into the world. Now, those are sort of two extremes on a continuum, and you might place yourself somewhere in between there. But we also can't forget there's this other factor that Scripture certainly doesn't ignore, that there are dark evil powers that exist, that love to inject chaos into the good of this world that God has created. Jesus himself refers to Satan as as the ruler of this world, acknowledging that he has power in this present time, and he uses it. And in fact, all through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see scenes over and over again where we have a picture of a cosmic battle that's going on, between these forces that are enemies of God, but always with the knowledge and the understanding and the trust that God is greater than those powers and ultimately they will all be defeated. And so really, it's less of a continuum than probably some combination of these three ideas. I'd like a simple solution, but I don't know that there is one. Why, though, this why question that we ask Whatever solution helps us to sleep better at night. It's a valid question, but I'm afraid that it might not be the most helpful question. Instead, we might need to acknowledge that the world as we experience it is broken. And try as we might We just can't really explain away or ignore the bad stuff. There's plenty of good theories out there about why chaos and evil persist, but every one of them is incomplete, and none of them will satisfy everyone, and maybe none of them satisfy you. So even though I don't think we can give the definitive answer as to why darkness is in this world, I think we can deal with what is. The why tries to deal with the past and tries to deal in explanations. But I think the better question is, now what? How do we deal with it and how do we get through today? I think one of the best things that we can look to is an example that's given to us in Scripture. There are these symbols that God has a way of changing what they mean. When we look at the symbol of the serpent, back in Genesis 3, when the serpent enters the garden, when the serpent comes in to deceive, any ancient reader, the original audience of, of this writing, 
When they see the serpent come in, I mean, it's like us reading a story and here comes the big bad wolf. They know what that means. <laughs> For them, the serpent, the Nahash, it, it was the preeminent symbol of chaos, of disorder, of disruption that was entering into the scene. But then over in Numbers 21, a funny thing happens. Something changes. At a time where Israel's sin has caused them to experience the brunt of some very real serpents in their midst, causing people to be bitten and poisoned and die, the way that God saves them is He instructs Moses to form a serpent out of bronze, put it up on a pole, and anyone who comes and looks upon that serpent will recover. They'll live. And so he takes this symbol that for all these people has always been a symbol of chaos and a symbol of death. And in one moment, he transforms it into a symbol of life. In fact, if you go to any hospital, you look at the side of just about any ambulance, you're probably going to see somewhere in their logos or the symbols that are on there, you're probably going to see a symbol of a serpent, maybe two serpents on a pole. Because that has become an almost universally understood sign of healing. A symbol of chaos. A symbol of death, which is the most complete expression of this world's chaos, is that death is where we're headed. Well, in God's hands, it is transformed into a symbol of healing and a symbol of life. And in fact, Jesus reminds his followers of that very reversal when he speaks of his own cross. In John 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Just as that serpent, that symbol of death, was lifted up and became a symbol of life, Jesus takes that era's most potent symbol of death, and what does he do with it? He turns it into a symbol of life that persists for eternity. See, this is one of the great themes that runs throughout all of Scripture, where God brings life where once was death. He brings light where there once was darkness, order where once was chaos. You see, we want the life, but we can forget that life sometimes comes not just despite death, but even through death. So what makes the whole concept of a resurrection so wondrous is that true life can follow death when the so-called natural order of things insists that it works the other way around. Because see, God has a history of faithfulness to his people. And there will be times, there are times, that the present is dark And it's worthy of lament. There are things worth being upset about. But we, the people of God, can lean upon the proven history of God's faithfulness to the covenant community of his people. We can see his history of taking death and turning it into life. Taking symbols of chaos and bringing them into symbols of life and of healing. You know, earlier this morning, I read the opening of of Psalm 44. Now, admittedly, I didn't read all of it. In fact, I made sure not to read all of it because once you get past the point I read up to, um, 
It's mostly just a complaint before God about how bad things are. It's not really the best way to open up a worship service, you know. It's kind of a downer. So I just read that beginning section. But I think we need to note, I don't think we can ignore the fact that in this complaint to God about how bad things are, asking why God seems so absent, why God seems so silent, what does it start with? We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. And he goes on to extol God and to praise him for the ways that he has been faithful in the past, that it was never the strength of God's people that brought them victory, but it was God himself who was faithful to them all along the way and brought them victory over their enemies. So even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of heartache, what sustains is the knowledge of God's long-standing history of faithfulness to his people. And we can respond to our darkness in the same way. We see it over in Romans 8. Starting in verse 22, and even before that, but I'm going to start in verse 22. We see this picture of a creation even that's groaning, a a world that's just not quite right right now. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So we see that there is trouble, but we know that there is hope. And so it continues in that well-known verse 28, And we know... That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we can see that God has something in mind for those that are his. We're not left to our own devices. We're not left to stumble through the darkness alone. But we have hope because God has a destiny in mind for us. So then in verse 31, he continues, What then shall we say in response to these things? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And as it is written, and by the way, he's quoting that dark part that I skipped of Psalm 44 here. 
For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God has proven himself faithful. So we know that no matter our darkness, we can trust in him. In all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I love that he says that he is convinced that all of these things cannot separate us from the love of God. Why is he so convinced? Well, he doesn't say specifically, but I can't help but think that at least part of it comes from seeing this example of our Lord. The example of Jesus, when there in the garden, before his arrest, when the darkness is surrounding him, when death is imminent, that ultimate, again, expression of chaos and destruction in this world is on its way to him, he prays a prayer of lament. He asked God, Father, if, the, if it be your will, you know, may this cup pass for me. Let this cup pass for me. This is not good. This is not what I want. This is not a joyful situation. But he follows that with, but not my will, but your will be done. Again, showing us hand in hand, we have lament, but we also have trust. Even in the darkest times, we know that God is still with us. But in response to that prayer, we see that, you know, the darkness wasn't just taken away. The cross wasn't just taken away. But Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. Even though the cross was still his destiny, the death that it brought was not his future. Even though... God might sometimes appear absent, and sometimes he does. Just read through the Psalms, and you'll see over and over again where people who loved God, who trusted God, said, God, I don't see you right now. Where are you? Even though he might sometimes appear absent, he has proven in the cross, but most importantly in the resurrection, that he is faithful. So where is God in the darkness. That's a question that's been asked for ages. Where is God in the midst of this? Whatever the this may be, whatever piece of darkness and chaos and pain and anguish might be visiting upon someone's life, they can ask and rightfully, where is God in this? But I think we've been given an answer. Where is God when the darkness of this world inflicts itself upon you? Well, he's present in the darkness with you. In fact, he bears that darkness with you in Christ's death upon a cross. Where is God in the suffering? He's suffering with you. He bears it with you. He walks through it with you. And just as Jesus was not abandoned to the grave, he will not abandon you either in your darkest hour. 
If you are going through some sort of darkness right now, maybe you don't know where God is. Maybe you're crying out, God, how long? God, where are you? God, can't you hear me? Jesus on the cross, I think, is our only answer to that question. When we see him in his sufferings on our behalf, and we see him being raised to new life, and we see that God suffers right along with us in our humanity, but he also offers us so much more. We know that he will not abandon us and forsake us, even if we can't see it in this present moment. And I hope you believe me when I tell you that. If you're going through some darkness right now, I pray that you would look to him and you would look at his story. The story that I talked about earlier. The story of Jesus. The story of God and his people in which he has proven himself faithful. And know that when you look at your own story, it's not over yet. In every story, there's a time of darkness. In every story, there's a time of conflict and hardship and struggle. But your story's not over yet. If you'd like to give the rest of your story over to God, if you haven't done that before, if you haven't accepted the love and forgiveness that He offers you, if you haven't accepted His his offer to, to be in His family, that opportunity to be called His son or His daughter, I pray that you would do something about that today. Or if you just want to know more about what that means, I pray that you would talk to someone today. Don't let a moment pass until you find out what it means to be His so that you can take hold of these promises and take hold of His faithfulness. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning to help you take hold of this faithful God and all that He wants to offer you, I pray that you would come and let us know this morning while we stand and while we sing.